This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run. He is out today traveling in California, but I am joined in the studio today by Lee Chen Ren. She's the Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and Kara Marciscano, who's a research analyst at Wisdom Tree. Please note, Kara and I are rich representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a very interesting show lined up for you today. It's been a fascinating week in the markets where really everything that was working to start the year, tech, momentum, low vol, all these trades sort of reverse on a dime at the beginning of this week, uh, coinciding with a big move in interest rates. We're going to have a really uh, interesting lineup today focused on technology. First half of the show, we're talking with Nicholas Johnson, who's a principal at Applico. Uh, he's worked, uh, his co-founder, Alex Mozed, has been on our show before. Uh, in the second half of the show, we're going to be broadcasting some interviews we did from the Cloud 100 event in San Francisco this week. Uh, we have a partner from Bessemer Venture Partners, Byron Dieter, who's very focused on the cloud space, uh, and then actually a cloud-based company, DocuSign, with the CEO, Dan Springer. Should be a fascinating uh, set of conversations for the second half of the show for you. Um, but before we bring on Nick, uh, Lee Chen and Kara, really big rotation in the markets this week from tech to value, from growth towards sort of small cap low PE type stocks. Any any commentary that you guys have, have seen looking at the markets this week? Kara, maybe from you? Sure. I think there was definitely some profit taking. Um, it didn't necessarily seem like it was fundamentally driven. Um, I think a lot of investors took the opportunity to uh, roll out of some of their growth names and transfer back into value. We'll see whether or not this is a permanent trend, but good for value this week. You had, you had the big move from from Draghi. People were wondering, will the ECB disappoint? You had Draghi announce policy. They lowered their policy rate 10 basis points. They started doing some tiered deposits to try to help the banks and not just make it negative on the banks. Um, so they're a really interesting week from monetary policy as well. And what's interesting is as they lowered their rates, it's not like we saw yields go down. Actually, the, there's been a big jump in yields. Uh, so it's, it's interesting you know, partly it's just been this whole rotation, whatever whatever worked, bonds, you know, stopped working. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, for Europe, I, I, the probably there's a little bit more consensus that the lower rates may not help in growth. That, you know, 
it's already in negative and there's only so much you know monetary policy monetary policy is good when there's a huge crisis you know uh, a very quick way of injecting money but if you're looking for long-term growth you really have to um from the fiscal uh, fiscal side and also from you can call it a deregulation you can call it a structural change and i think that that is the message from ecb yeah, Draghi's basically saying you need to get the fiscal stimulus coming. Now, they've got low rates, so it's not costing them a lot to borrow and do the fiscal stimulus. You just haven't seen really a big step up there. It'll be interesting if Christine Lagarde coming in, this would be Draghi's last meeting. It'll be interesting to see if she comes in and, and can really move the needle. I think um, the addition of Lagarde is very, very key. I think Draghi was very clear in his speech this week that Fiscal policy is important, and I know Lagarde's um, history gives her background where she is more focused on um, collaboration between fiscal and monetary policy. So it will be interesting to see after she enters whether there are fundamental changes in fiscal policy in Europe. Yeah. Actually, to add a little point about these uh, factor rotations, uh, the change of factor returns in the last week, um, I, I mean, that's, you know, from my point of view, that's even a better argument to having a multi-factor because I, I'm a multi-factor person that, you know, to have a little bit, you know, exposure to every one of them, uh, whether it's value, momentum, quality or size um, and potentially growth uh, as well, it, you know, can be your guiding you know, almost like the benchmark of your portfolio. So multi-factor gets you a little bit of everything so you don't have to worry about these very big single-factor moves. Of course, you have very high conviction, you make a single-factor, you know, bets. Uh, we believe in value and, you know, we we have a lot of value-oriented uh, strategy which we've, we've benefited. But I think uh, multi-factor strategies gets people's uh, portfolio anchored um, so it's like, you know, you want to see whether your portfolio are able to outperform multi-factor. Um, you know, with all the, the trade dynamics going on, you sort of, small caps have had this record, in some ways record underperformance, especially compared to large cap growth. But, you know, small cap value has been, been a very tough place to be. And you say, well, what's going on? They've got a trade war. It should, op- it, it should hurt multinationals who are more exposed to global trade, the global economy. Now, I think some of it's that the tech companies that we're going to talk about today, that tech is in large cap growth and they've done so well. That's partly what's going on. Um, but also you could see with just the move in interest rates and, and the 10 years up 30 basis. I, mean, I don't know the exact number at the moment, but it's, it's up a huge amount over the last few weeks. And that, I think, partly is what signaled small caps over large caps, that small caps are trading off on a fear of the U.S. economy going down, recessions, not good for small cap cyclicals. Uh, so it's interesting to see the rate story tied to that. Yeah, and also I think there's also a little bit of rotation. Like uh, last uh, about two weeks ago, we were talking about that when when bond did so well, usually you know uh, some asset allocators will be you know would tends to have to sell off a little bit. So mm-hmm. partly also you know that could play a little bit in terms of driving uh, and the lesser fear of uh, actual recession. And we've also been talking a lot about China, Hong Kong. Any comments on what's been going on just recently in Hong Kong, Li Chen? Is that is the is the tension dying down? Is it? 
What do, what do you think? Uh, about the tension is definitely died down sub- substantially. I think uh, for, uh, compared to before, particularly after the government came out and really met one of the demands. The five the the protests have five demands. So the first one is a complete scrap of the extradition bill. A bill. So that after that first demand, now the second, you know, and third ones is about independent commission. I think this is where. We'll see whether the protesters still got a lot of support. Uh, whether the government is willing to set up an independent commi- a commission, I think this is the next thing to watch. But compared to before, uh, it's definitely substantially uh, dying down. So one thing I, I think when people think about China, is a few countries which really is a kind of a um, leading indicator in in political issues. Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore. Like you look at how they perform or how they, you know, how China reacts to them uh, is very interesting. So, I mean, in in next month, we, we, we likely bring a guest to talk about uh, Taiwan's election, which is coming up uh, January, uh, which is going to um, really show us what's the sentiment on China's side and also on the, on the, on the side of people who have a freedom to express their will. You know, uh, Hong Kong does not, Hong Kong is much less free uh, in terms of the political process uh, as to Taiwan. So it'll be interesting whether the Taiwanese uh, people uh, pick their incumbent, uh, the, the the opposition to a Kuomintang, which is kind of the, the earliest uh, party, or versus do they want to pick a, a new one? Is is the economy, you know, being so bad that they want to uh, move away from the incumbent? In, incumbent. So I think uh, Taiwan's election could um, could really show two things. One is how China is responding to all these political, uh, potential poli- similar politi- political demands in Hong Kong. Um, the, as the second thing is if, you know, the people has the freedom to express exactly what they want, um, what what do, what, the, what do they really want? Interesting. Yeah. yeah, we'll keep our eyes on that. Well, let me bring in our, our first guest, Nick Johnson, who's a principal at Applico. Uh, he works directly with Fortune 500, C-suites, and boards to help them build their own platform businesses. He's co-author of Applico's Amazon best-selling book, Modern Monopolies, uh, and he's the, the first Pokemon champion. Nick, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Maybe tell us a little bit, how did you and Alex come together to sort of work at Applico and for you guys to co-author Modern Monopolies together? Yeah, so I've actually known Alex for a long time. Uh, We went to middle school together, so uh, that was part of how we came together. But uh, I'd been working at an economics think tank for a few years. This was about six years ago. Uh, Applico was then an app development company that Alex had founded in college. Uh, doing quite well building apps for the likes of Google, Apple, as well as big companies like Verizon, GM, and others. And what we came together and kind of started talking about was that the way some companies were using technology was actually very different than traditional companies. It's not just slap an app on top of your business. It's really about fundamentally rethinking your whole business model based on what technology enables it to do. And what that pointed us toward was platform businesses, this business model where you don't all the own all of the underlying assets. You're creating these big external networks with network effects uh, that are asset light and have high scale unit economics. Uh, and really, we started to dive deep into what are these businesses, how they work. At the time, this was not something that had been really fleshed out publicly. And out of that work, uh, we started doing this with a mix of startups and large enterprises. Out of that came the book uh, Modern Monopolies, which really kind of lays out the blueprint 
for this business model, how it works, why it's been kind of the secret sauce of all the big tech companies for the last 20, 30 years, and how you can start to combine that with more traditional business models in some really pretty interesting ways. And so where would you say the overall economy, if you think about the big tech companies as sort of enabling this or being the, the premier platform type companies, how would you say this is filtering down to the, the broader community of companies and where, where we are in the transition there? I think I think uh, we're in the midst of a long-term transition. I think platforms are really the dominant business model of the 21st century. They do become these kind of modern monopolies, and uh, that's a long-term transition, kind of like the Industrial Revolution. If you ask someone when that started or when it took place, it's not like it happened on a year. It was like a 50-year transition. And I would uh, suggest that we're probably in about year 15 or year 20 of a transition like that. These business models are only going to become more dominant. I think the early stages you saw these popping up in the kind of low-hanging fruit industries like retail and media, and now you're starting them to see that these business models have a big impact in areas from uh, heavy manufacturing, B2B distribution, uh, auto, uh, transport, freight, all the kinds of areas that are really uh, not quite as sexy or, or uh, techy usually, but are really uh, the underpinning or have a big impact on the whole economy, and you're starting to see these businesses filter throughout the entire economy, and this business model is really taking over. Thanks. Nick, uh, could you talk a little bit more about the unit economics of these platform businesses and um, how that positions them to potentially outperform? I know there's less focus on what these businesses actually own. Inventory and property are only about 5% of their assets, and cost of goods sold is noticeably lower expense relative to companies that are in the S&P 500. Um, maybe just discuss what are their major expenses and um, how their balance sheets look in comparison to a linear traditional business. Yeah, I think the, the biggest difference between a kind of traditional linear business, as we call them linear, meaning basically they're described by a typical supply chain in which value kind of flows in one direction, uh, you take <clears throat> take in some kind of input, do a value-added process to it, and sell it on to somebody else. That's why we call those linear businesses. In contrast, uh, platforms don't really own a lot of assets. The big difference you see there is they're very asset-light, which is why their balance sheets look very different. The biggest uh, asset that they actually have, quote-unquote, is this third-party network. So they connect some kind of third-party value creator, what we would typically call a producer, whether that's someone selling a product or a service or creating content or many different other types of value like software. Uh, and they connect with a consumer, and they exchange value. The platform really just owns the means of connection, facilitating them. Uh, that means that this business model, very asset light and easy to scale. They have these network effects uh, that they build naturally over time by connecting both sides of this network. And because of that, the typical kind of marginal cost curve that you would see for a traditional business is actually very different for a platform. Rather than being kind of U-shaped, meaning that at a certain point, uh, you start to get diseconomies of scale in a traditional business once you reach a certain size due to things like uh, resource constraints, uh, information, and diseconomies of scale and complexity. These platforms, because of that network effect, tend to actually expand to the total size of the market. So they have very strong winner-take-all effects. You often see one or two platforms taking over a market. Uh, for example, in the desktop operating system market, people, a lot of people don't talk about Microsoft dominance there these days because it's not as top of mind, but they still have about 80% of that market. Apple's still only about 10%. Or if you look on mobile operating systems, Android and iOS, really at the top there. Uh, social networking, it's Facebook. Uh, online video, it's really YouTube that's dominant in the U.S. You have a similar situation in China where uh, you have marketplaces like Alibaba that have 50, 60 plus percent market share. 
So really across the board, you see these businesses tend to have a strong winner-take-all dynamic because they're asset light and have these network effects where basically the, the value of each additional user increases over time as you expand that network. Uh, they're able to grow much faster and much quicker than a traditional linear business. So practically what that means is where does their money go? It goes into user acquisition and building the network. It goes into the technology and tools and services to support that business. It doesn't go to things like building up fixed assets uh, as much as it goes into human capital to build those things uh, and acquire users and build the technology, but not, say, uh, heavily into services or supporting customers or that kind of stuff to the degree that a traditional business was. We're talking with Nick Johnson, who's a principal at Applico and also the author of the book Modern Monopolies uh, about the platform business model that he is very much focused on. Um, Nick, when you think about the the rotation that we've seen this week, there's a lot of different things going on in the markets. But you know, I know there's a lot of focus on regulation and the and tech companies being sort of prime focal point from you know just different worries about are they going to be, and you're, even your book calling them monopolies, worries about reg- regulations and, and sort of breaking them up. Where, where would you say the big tech companies are in this regulatory risk? Yeah, I think uh, that at the end of the day, it's been kind of the Wild West. I would describe these companies as akin to systemically important financial institutions. There's a lot of externalities and things that these big networks create. They are, in effect, systemically important. They affect lots of areas of the economy just beyond their own private business. Uh, and that's really one of the hallmarks of these platforms. They facilitate lots of transactions and interactions, and in some cases, create entire new markets. Uh, if you just look at something like Airbnb, for example, it's created an entire new category uh, at scale of uh, travel and homestays. Uh, and the short, the short version of where this is going, I think you're going to see that At the end of the day, these businesses are going to become more regulated. They're too important and too big not to in terms of their impact on the economy. Uh, I think you're going to find that a lot of these investigations, things that are ramping up, I think this is a multi-year process. But it's not just happening in the U.S. It's happening in its own way in Europe. It's also happening in its own way in China. I think there will be different paths to dealing with this sort of systemically important issue. Uh, At the end of the day, something's going to happen. The status quo definitely isn't going to stay the same. These businesses will become more regulated uh, I think if you talk about uh, the news that came out in the last couple of days, for example, of uh, the Justice Department, I believe, or the FTC is starting to interview, for example, third-party sellers on Amazon and see if there's anything Amazon's doing that's anti-competitive. I would say it's probably almost inevitable that they find something because at the moment, no one's watching. And as much as Amazon tries to, say, regulate its own behavior, we've seen in many other instances similar situations, that doesn't work very well. So these platform businesses are sort of unique in terms of antitrust regulation, right? Because producers and the consumers on these networks are both customers of the platform. So would you argue that a linear business, a business like Amazon that has a linear business as well as a platform business where they're selling third-party products should be able to compete alongside a third-party product provider? I think I think in practice, it's impossible to separate out or distinguish the two effectively. I know there's been some suggestions like Elizabeth Warren's that you should strictly break these two up. I think in practice, what you see is a lot of Amazon's linear business, what it really does is serve a marketing, uh, a market making capacity. So it says we're going to go into a new industry like they have recently with Amazon business and B2B distribution. That started out with a lot of linear selling. So Amazon, what they call 1P, first party business, selling stuff directly. Then it opened up into this marketplace because they drove all that demand through that one piece selling. All these third party sellers could now come in and they had a whole new market to sell through. 
Uh, I think that in practice, you can't really separate out the two. It's very difficult to do that. You've even seen companies like eBay, which has made a, a you know, push or hallmark about how we don't compete with our producers and uh, start to move more and more in that direction to doing things like providing fulfillment directly to those producers and moving more directly into the kind of stuff that Amazon does uh, in a 1P manner in terms of handling fulfillment, selling services to customers. I think where these businesses tend to get in trouble is when they compete with their producers unfairly. So I don't think you can tell them they can't compete with their producers, but there is a way that you could say you have to do it on a level playing field. And I think there's definitely a case to be made uh, that Amazon has not, for example, been doing that very well. I mean, I mean, what's interesting is you could say, um, you know, should all the private label companies, you, you go to a Costco, you could buy Kirkland branded things, you go to, you know, your local um, big grocery store and you could get the, the Procter & Gamble brand named Tide or you could get the generic brand. And like, are, are those companies going to be the next regulated because they know what their customers are buying and then they make the same exact product without the brand name on it? It's the same yeah, example, right? In some that ways, private label problem isn't new. I think what's new is the market power and systemic nature of these platform businesses compared to those kind of linear businesses. Yes, even a business like Walmart is massive, but it doesn't touch, uh, you know, forty or fifty percent of e-commerce the way Amazon does. Uh, so I think that the the scale of these businesses makes them kind of qualitatively different, and yeah. uh, I think that's why you're going to see some uh, guardrails start to be put in place on what they can and can't do. You know, the other big tech news this week um, has been uh, WeWork. Uh, how do you think about, you know, WeWork, they're, they're talking about going IPO. Uh, they're talking about delaying it. They talk about is, is this the lack of interest in the IPO a bad sign for tech generally and the SoftBank Vision Fund and all the venture capital money coming after tech generally? Is, what do, what's your take on the WeWork IPO and, and all the things going over there? Yeah, I think WeWork's a very interesting case. So WeWork, uh, not a platform business, a very heavy asset-based uh, company. I think ultimately all the important questions about WeWork and whether their business works are not tech questions. They're real estate questions. So I really view WeWork uh, through the lens of not a tech company, but a real estate company. It's one that uh, is enabled or helped by tech, but it's not fundamentally a software or tech business. So at the end of the day, if I view WeWork through the lens of a, a real estate company, it's one that has... Uh, a lot of long-term liabilities and short-term demand. Uh, I think that mismatch is something that I would be very worried about and in the inevitable uh, instance of an economic downturn. Uh, so I, I would not be bullish on WeWork's business model and where it is now, and I, I struggle to see how they will eventually uh, make money from that. And I think what you're starting to see is that they're really starting to get a reckoning around that uh, as they try to go public and more people look with close scrutiny at what this business actually is. Um, hi Nick, this is Lee Chen. Uh, when I was looking at, uh, you mentioned uh, about you know a lot of regulations. One thing that really strikes me is that you know in the top sectors that uh, you have identified as as a uh, uh, platform are uh, consumer services, consumer discretionary, financials, and uh, IT. IT is actually the fourth, uh, not the top one. But healthcare is really less than two percent. Like, do you see that is the next place where there's more? Uh, um, more of the platform uh, business coming, and the second related question is also, um, it's uh, from from what you, what I read is that you know this is also heavy on China and uh, U.S. So it's almost like China and the U.S. is eighty percent of of the market cap. Uh, is that also going to continue? Yeah, great question. So we we have what you're describing. We have this platform insights uh, data product, which basically classifies 
where are large public platform companies and what percentage of platform revenue do they have? Uh, and basically, when you look at the industries you're describing, healthcare is very low. Uh, I think that that is going to change, I would say, in the next five to 10 years. I think a lot of regulation has slowed that down. I think also, if you think about how platform opportunities are captured, historically, there's been two main ways. Uh, one is through VC-funded startups coming into that industry and disrupting it and taking over with a platform model. Two is large platform companies uh, you know, like an Amazon, like an Alibaba, like a Google, uh, using their core uh, kind of network monopoly. So in Google, that would be search. Alibaba, that would be its marketplace, to then go spin out new platform businesses. They say, we have one side of this network already. We're going to go spin it out and get an additional one. I think you're starting to see all these big tech companies aim at healthcare. But I think the third way you're going to see these platform opportunities captured in the next five to 10 years are incumbents. They're going to look at their businesses and their assets. They see this disruption coming, and they're going to say, we're going to spin out our own platform business and take this on. I think you're going to see that in healthcare. I think healthcare is a bit of a lag because of a lot of the regulation uh, and incumbents around data privacy and sharing. I think as rules and guardrails start to be put in place around that, you're going to see a lot of this open up and a lot more platform businesses make their way into healthcare. Uh, so I think that's a little bit why that's been lagging. On the U.S. and China question, um, I think as you see a shift to uh, more of these incumbents embracing platform business models, I think you're going to see a lot more coming out of other areas like Europe, uh, which is, doesn't have quite as much of an early-stage tech ecosystem as U.S. or China does, but certainly I can tell you from the, the work we've done in our experience has a lot of companies looking at these platform models. Uh, so I think you'll see maybe an increase there, but I do think uh, you're certainly going to see a continued dominance of U.S. and China in terms of the big places where a lot of these businesses are coming from. Nick, do you have a view on M&A in the platform world? So as other businesses begin to adopt a platform business model, is there an advantage from being a pure play platform business versus being um, a linear business combined with a platform business? Yeah, I think both platforms and linear businesses have their own strengths and weaknesses as business models. I think where you often see uh, the strongest businesses are when you find the way to meld those two together. So you, you combine the strengths of the platform and the linear business, like an Amazon does, uh, and find a way to put them together so that you can use the linear business to, say, generate lots of revenue and then go use the platform that you build on top of that, as Amazon does, to go generate most of the profit. Uh, so I, I think that the strongest businesses over time, uh, Apple is another example of this, linear hardware company sells lots of products and has platforms like iOS and the App Store, which generate uh, a lot of high margin revenue and profit for it. So I think that a lot of these linear businesses combined with platform businesses do very well. Uh, I, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule that you say have to do both, but I think you're over time going to see more and more of these big platform companies moving in a more linear direction in some areas. Uh, and you've already started to see this, for example, with Alibaba and China going into physical retail, Amazon looking at physical retail and these worlds starting to come together. And on the flip side of that, you're definitely going to see a lot more linear companies moving in a platform direction. And they're not going to transition the entire company to a platform, but they're going to find how you combine those two together. Yeah, and that's a lot of what Applico is focused on, Nick, right, in terms of you guys, you're trying to consult some of the old linear-based businesses and how do they become more platform-like or how do they develop their own platforms. Any learnings from the types of clients, CEOs you're working with, and how do they transition their business, how long it takes them, and just different things you've learned as, as a consultant to big CEOs? Yeah, I think it's it's a tough challenge. That's what I'll say. First of all, if I think put myself in the shoes of the CEO of a, a large enterprise, 
Uh, if I'm a public company, I'm often there for you know maybe three years in some parts of the world, maybe three you know three to five is kind of the average. This is a long-term investment. Uh, it's you know five to seven years till you really start to get maturity and turn a profit. So I have to be thinking long-term. We really tend to work with I would say the kind of one percent of one percent of CEOs that think that way. They say, hey, uh, this is important. This is where our industry is going. We have to do this. This is the fundamentals of the future of our company. We're going to make this investment, and we're going to try to disrupt ourselves in many cases. And that's hard to do. You need absolutely the CEO uh, to be involved in that process and the board and all the way on down. They have to set that tone and say, we're going to do this. Uh, otherwise, it's very easy for the core business to naturally kind of activate its antibodies and defend itself from this kind of disruption. And, it, and if there was a particular industry CEO listening in, that you think absolutely is ripe for change, what industry is that that you want them to, to be calling you? Uh, I would say that there's a few where I think this is happening. I think one is B2B distribution. Uh, you now had Amazon business go in and build a business from zero sales to 10 billion in three years in the U.S. Now you've had Walmart get into this. Uh, you've had uh, uh, Alibaba get into this, and I believe Rocketen and others are trying to get into this as well. So you've got you know three or four of the largest companies in the world all trying to build platforms and B2B distribution. Uh, the incumbents are starting to see that they've got to embrace this platform disruption uh, to really go after it themselves. B2B distribution, even in the U.S., is two to three times the size of consumer retail. So it's a massive opportunity, and there's lots of, uh, lots of space for a, you know, vertical-specific platforms that pop up and do very well. Um, other areas where I think you're going to see this in the next few years, uh, healthcare. Uh, and finance, and I think you're starting to see a lot of the big tech companies get into these spaces, and I think incumbents have a lot of advantages there and can go do this themselves. And also risk if the incumbents do not, you know, embrace the new model. Uh, Absolutely. Th these are these are existential questions. Uh, you know, th this is, a again, a 50-year shift. We're in early innings still, and uh, incumbents are going to continue to have to figure this out and uh, figure out how they adapt to this platform future. Any other, you know, sort of final closing minutes and thoughts? Any, as you think about the tech platforms and, and the case for just their reasons that they are the place to be, you know, in terms of being this industrial long-term shift, any other cases you'd make on why people want to think about this as one of their, their long-term secular innovative threads? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the short version I would say is if you just look at plat platforms as an asset class and a business model, they perform incredibly well. They tend to make more profit and get better valuations from investors compared to traditional competitors. So if I'm, and I'm an industry CEO and I'm looking at uh, w what is the opportunities in front of me, uh, I've got many opportunities, but if I want to figure out what is the one that has the best potential long-term return, I would be looking at platform opportunities first. Very good. We've been talking with Nick Johnson, who is a principal at Applico. They've been working on this platform-based business model. You can find his book, Modern Monopolies, anywhere. Any other things of where they can find you, Nick, to, to, to read your work? Uh, they can find us on our website, uh, applecoink.com, and we've got a, a short video series we do called Winner Take All on YouTube as well. Yeah, there's the producing a lot of content over on the new video YouTube channel. Uh, it's been a pleasure getting to chat with you, Nick. Thanks for so much for joining us on our show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I do have to make a few disclosures. Applico is a data provider for an index that WisdomTree created. So we've been gotten to know the Applico guys fairly well over the last few years, and uh, they're produ producing a lot of interesting insights on this platform business model. Um, in the second half of the show, you're going to be talking, we're going to hear from Bessemer Venture Partners, uh, print, uh, Principal Byron Dieter. We've 
also worked as with it with as a data provider, Bessemer Venture Partners for an index that Wisdom Tree licensed from the Nasdaq, and so the Bessemer works with Nasdaq on that index. We're also talking to the DocuSign CEO. DocuSign is a holding in a cloud computing ETF that we have. Uh, so just full disclosure on that as well. Uh, and thank you to Lee Chen as always for being in the studio, Kara for making the trip from New York here to be in our Warren studio. Thank you both for for being on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, nice to know you, Nick. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. The index being discussed is tracked by the Wisdom Tree Cloud Computing Fund, WCLD. The discussions about the potential growth of the cloud computing sector are the opinions of the audio participants, and there is no guarantee the space will experience significant growth. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objective, risk, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. There are risks associated with investing. Cloud computing companies may have limited product lines, markets, financial resources, or personnel and are subject to the risks of changes in the business cycles, world economic growth, technological progress, and government regulation. These companies typically face intense competition and potentially rapid product obsolescence. Securities of cloud computing companies tend to be more volatile than securities of companies that rely less heavily on technology and specifically on the internet. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus, available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributor, Foresight Fund Services, LLC.